Because you may hate it, like the idea that you know Biden says, "Yeah, I, I'm going to have a woman running with me. I'm open to a Republican running with me," and Sarah Palin might be his best choice. And that's horrible and horrifying. We should all be uh, deeply disturbed by that idea. But did you I'm see there. her on Dancing with the Stars? Or not Dancing with the Stars, uh, The Masked Singer? No. She was on the show. She she was dressed in a giant, like, psychedelic bear costume, uh, twerking to Baby Got Back. And um, at a certain point, we kind of have to question, um, are we in hell? <laughs> Just, did, did something oh. at some point happen? Like, if we just been, like dying since 2012 like the world did end uh christ came back was pissed off left no one got raptured because we're all terrible and we've just been living in hell since then um it's a real possibility we should all consider it i don't i don't know i i feel like hell would be better and more consistent than this (laughs) this is too chaotic to be hell yeah i i would figure that you know that satan himself would have put his foot down by now all right guys y'all are being ridiculous yeah and and, it would have been like look i didn't risk my eternal life challenging the god of gods for this yeah for sarah palin in a psychedelic bear suit i didn't didn't, nobody nobody wanted this there are some tortures that are too great for the dark lord (laughs) and that's definitely one of them it's up there um, yeah, it's fucking up no, there. God when I damn. saw that, I was really convinced, like I, I was just having a stroke. Like it was just like, oh, cool. All right, yeah, well, this is the end now. Well, you know, it's it's curious. Uh, you know, another great evil bestowed on us by the Dark One. Huh. The law. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Could, I, I feel like that was a decent transition. So it works. Here we are. We are the Long Road Podcast. I'm Sasha. Trevor. Uh, and today we're going to talk about how the law is not going to save you. Never has. Uh, and that really uh, law has been the way that oppression has been uh enabled and put into action uh, so let's ask history. a big question uh which is of course the at the forefront of everyone's mind what is the law uh, yeah let, let's let's hear what you have to say about that <laughs> um the law is words written on paper enforced by the barrels of guns um, yeah, I I think that lines up with kind of my understanding is that laws are rules backed by violence. Yeah, that that you can have rules, but those rules aren't the law unless they're backed up with violence. Yeah. Um. Oh, there's a line. I'm gonna so, try and find this line while we're talking. Yeah. So I I think one one thing people might ask is, oh, well, you know, it's not like. All, law, all, all laws are violence. There's not like a threat of violence behind that. And I would challenge you to con- reconsider that um, and look at the whole pathway that can follow for not following uh, even the smallest laws violations. So the big laws we already know are backed up by violence. Um, if you start rampaging and shooting people, then the cops can shoot you. 
what you're doing is illegal. Yeah. It's also it's also evil, uh, and uh, you know a, a violent response is uh, you know is the is legal is the legal uh, recourse to that, um, and also the correct recourse in that situation. But there's something else maybe with uh, like not paying a parking ticket. Yeah, I'm actually going to quote something from uh, Robert Anton Wilson right now. Um, it's from the yeah. Illuminatus trilogy. Fun sci-fi, weird psychedelic sci-fi. It's bizarre. <laughs> it's a fun read if you want to just dedicate a good you know week of your life to slowly going insane. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's the idea of Marx. The ideology of the ruling class becomes the ideology of the whole society. Well, not the ideology, the reality. This was a public park until they changed the definition. Now guns have changed reality. It isn't a public park. There's more than one kind of magic. It's just like the Enclosure Acts. One day the land belongs to the people, the next day it belongs to the landlords. And the Narcotics Acts. 100,000 harmless junkies become criminals overnight by an act of Congress in 1927. Ten years later, in 37, all the potheads in the country became criminals overnight by an act of Congress. And they really were criminals when those papers were signed. The guns prove it. You walk away from those guns and wave a joint and refuse to halt when they tell you, their imagination becomes your reality in a second. Yeah. There you go. I uh, So you have those very distinct criminal laws, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I think most people understand that criminal laws are backed up by violence. Uh, and that violence yeah. is with the police. And if you resist the police, they will beat you up and they will kill you sometimes. Um, they'll kill you plenty of times when you're, you're not resisting, too. Uh, and prison is inherently violent. Um, yeah. You're being, you know, you're held in one place uh, and you're not allowed to leave. And they will use violence to prevent you from leaving. Um, so that that's all backed up with violence. Uh, then there's the other side of it, which are just the regular everyday things that are also implicitly backed up with violence. Uh, if you don't pay tickets, uh, then they'll garnish your wages. Um, if you don't have wages, then they'll come to take your car. And guess who's going to come to take your car? The Would sheriffs. It be the police. Oh. Yeah. And if you resist, they can arrest you. So. Uh, it's all backed with violence, even though most of the time it doesn't lead to violence because people generally comply. The threat is real, uh, and the threat is strong enough that all of us will comply with the laws that we feel like we have to. Um, and it's so that as you said, we it's don't not get beat up, we don't get shot and killed. Criminal laws, because I mean, even like you know, parking tickets and stuff like that are usually enforcement of some statute, and while they may be, you know. Uh, not even up to the level of like real misdemeanors, but still they are, uh, they're, they're criminal laws still. Um, yeah. And well, a parking tickets, a violation. It's a, yeah. it's a, yeah. But, uh, even with just purely civil law, um, which, uh, a prime example actually is immigration law. Immigration law is a, uh, civil branch of the law, um, which has, uh, allowed some, uh, pretty heavy atrocities, uh, throughout our country. Um, I want to actually step back to um, the uh, 1868 Burlingham Treaty, which was uh, <laughs> a change in law about how we treated like uh, Chinese workers, and we allowed Chinese yeah. laborers to come work and live in the U.S. Um, shortly after that, there was a depression in the U.S., not the Great Depression, but it was a depression in uh, 84, 
um, that uh, led to this like strong scapegoating of Chinese immigrants as coming here and diluting our own workforce and the idea of well, these Chinese nationals who are loyal to China and they're coming to our country and they're taking away our work. You've heard yeah. this similar rhetoric be used when addressing uh, immigrants coming in yeah. from uh, South America and Central America to the U.S. Throughout, throughout history, it's been used. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so in 84, uh, Congress passed a requirement for Chinese to obtain what they had uh, certifications of reentry. So if they left the country, they had to get these certificates saying, like, I've been in the U.S., I was okay to be here as a worker, I'm leaving, and I'm going to come back in. Uh, and what ended yeah. up happening then is that in 88, Congress changed the law to ban all entries, including those uh, certificates of reentry. And so there's a series of cases that came out of this where folks were actually leaving the country for, like, eight days and coming back in, or, like, literally leaving, like, on a boat and, like, turning back around and coming back to the U.S., and all of a sudden it's like, no, you are no longer allowed to come into the U.S. And the, the reason that Congress had this power is the idea of uh, plenary power, which basically means that uh, Congress has uh, exclusive powers, uh, which is incident to the sovereignty of the state. And so the existence of the state itself gives Congress the power to actually regulate who can be part of that state. It really is where we yeah. get the idea of like, who is a citizen? How, how, what is citizenship? And yeah. we had this treaty going on that allowed, you know, uh, Chinese workers to come over and work in the U.S. And Congress just unilaterally suspended the treaty. Um, and it was decided that this was not a violation of the Constitution. Uh, it wasn't a violation of the Fifth Amendment um, because the admittance of foreign citizens was a license that could be revoked at any point. It was a purely civil action. People didn't have yeah. a right to come back to this country because they weren't citizens. They were licensees. Yeah. They had a license to come back and work in the country. Well, and I, I think the question, because we have to keep the, we have to remember where the violence is coming from in this. Uh, so, what is the role of uh, violence in maintaining that, enforcing that? Uh, in a lot of cases, uh, it just means that people are uh, subject to deportation. Um, they're subject to exclusion, and the real spot you see folks suffering probably the most from this is denial of asylum where folks actually have uh something they're fleeing from natural disaster uh gang yeah. violence uh government yeah. suppression and historically what you could do is you show up to uh a immigration official who in a lot of cases would just be um uh dhs uh dhs folks at the border yeah. and just saying like hey i'm applying for asylum and then you'd be going through this civil proceeding where you basically have to prove to an immigration judge that you uh, are actually uh, available to be asylumed into this country. And there's a whole bunch of little uh, things you have to prove for that, which are like that you are part of some uh, subject class, that you're like yeah. a racial group or a political group that is subject to... Um, particular scrutiny by your government from the place you're fleeing yeah. or is under some certain hardship because you are uh, a certain class of people who are fleeing gang violence or racial violence yeah. and um that and I, has I think allowed... one of the other ones is under the torture convention if uh you were tortured or you were uh certain that you would be tortured and you know either by the government or that the government wouldn't do anything about it that's also another justification. Yeah, and there's been a lot of issues with like uh, folks fleeing gang violence and uh, 
the question of you know whether or not someone who's fleeing gang violence are they part of a specific class or are they just uh, subject to the same fears that anyone would have from a country that has uh, prevalent gang activity yeah and uh one of the things that happened uh within the last um couple of years was that um there there was a a, a case that allowed um married women from Guatemala to leave uh, abusive relationships. If they were suffering domestic abuse, they could actually leave and could apply for asylum in the U.S. And yeah. that had been ongoing for multiple years. And uh, mm-hmm. when uh, Jeff Sessions was the AG, Sessions just kind of unilaterally overruled precedent on that. Um, and he essentially wrote, uh, well, the AG's office wrote an uh, opinion letter that said that uh, there is no social group that you are part of. You, there's no particular group because the particular group is married women who can't leave their abusive partners. And the AG's office argued that that group does not exist independent of the harm inflicted on that group. They argued that Guatemalan society doesn't recognize the group and they basically led to instructions to when they should be considering asylum applications that they can just say, oh, well, you're fleeing domestic violence. And while that has been a valid reason to seek asylum historically, with one letter from the AG, who I think we can all really, really easily say is a racist piece of shit, just that group no longer existed. You no longer were able to get asylum. It it used this uh, legal process to make rules in a particular case that rewrote decades of statutory and regulatory rules that affected nearly everything in asylum process and substantive law. Um, And basically said that, like, you know, claims by aliens pertaining to domestic violence or gang perpetrated violence or violence perpetrated by non-government actions no longer qualify for asylum. And all it took was just getting one shitheel in the right political yeah. position to write this letter i just said well yeah i mean sure we have statutes on this and case law on this and we have yeah. a, a good breadth of law that is established and says that yes if you are fleeing this violence you can still get asylum yeah and within so a I, week it reversed all of that it reversed all of that and i can say from uh my own personal experience a few years ago, I actually practiced immigration law uh, and most of my uh, clients were Guatemalan Um, and domestic violence and gang violence are the number one reasons uh, for people leaving Guatemala and coming to the U S to claim asylum. Um, So we've seen in a lot of cases recently as folks who have, um, come to the U.S. to pursue asylum, who then were swept up by uh, ICE and DHS and ended up being deported, a staggering number of them who are fleeing gang violence are dead now because we sent them back and the gangs are waiting for them because they know we're sending them back. Yep. Um, Like that, that's absolutely certain. There is a reason they are leaving those countries. And uh, most of the, almost all the asylees, or the majority of the asylees coming out of Guatemala also are uh, indigenous. The the largest number, I would say the largest, the plurality are indigenous women. Um, And to give people a good impression of kind of just how fucked uh, the situation is, uh, indigenous women in in, in Guatemala, most of them can barely speak Spanish. Uh, they speak 
there are a number of Mayan dialects uh, where from valley to valley, they're incomprehensible to one another. So you've got maybe a few thousand people who actually can speak your language. And so um, what does that look like when someone who, um, you know, is uh, speaking one of these more isolated languages is uh, suddenly thrust into the uh, immigration court system we have here in the U.S.? Yeah. So, I mean, so you got a number of things going on there. First off, American courts don't speak English. They speak legalese, right? So it's a very specific kind of English. Well, it which depends. Most well, which most English speakers don't understand themselves, right? Um, which is purposeful. The law is, and this is part of its being violent and powerful, is that it uses language to obfuscate and disempower people uh, so that they can't actually understand what's going on because they don't know what the words mean and how they relate to each other. Um, you add that on top of, uh, so in my experience, uh, like interviewing people from Guatemala, I had to have uh, two translators. I had to have people who could, I had to have somebody who could speak Spanish and English. I had to have another interpreter who spoke Spanish and the indigenous Mayan language. Um, and so uh, interviews could take a couple of hours where normally with an English speaker, I'd be able to do it in 20 minutes because you have two interpreters. You're not certain of what it really means. So even when uh, these asylum seekers actually do have immigration attorneys, which most of them don't. Mm -hmm. uh, even when they do have immigration attorneys, their immigration attorneys aren't even fully certain of the entire story because of the language barriers. Uh, because the only people who uh, are, you know, the best interpreters are already hired by the immigration courts. So uh, there aren't enough interpreters. Um, and with this change in rules, it means that many, many more people are going to lose their uh, their cases for asylum. They're going to get sent back to Guatemala. And this is where the other side of the law, uh, which is policy, yeah. uh, comes into play. Uh, so in this particular case of Guatemala, the reason things are as bad as they are there is because of a civil war that we've been told is over, but in many ways it's not. Um, a civil war that started in the 70s, it lasted for about 50 years, 30, 30 some years, 40 years, uh, as a result of the U.S. government uh, essentially propping up a far right wing fascist dictatorship in Guatemala that then proceeded to commit genocide against the, in the indigenous peoples, particularly in the uh, northern and eastern parts of the country. So, well, and that's a big part of it, too, is, you know, that we, we do have this. Um kind of broad policy program to uh, protect, and I'm putting in scare quotes, like national security in this country. And yeah. so we have these certain hotspots around the world that we have said, no, we're not letting people in from this area because of reasons. Um, right. uh, one of the ones, of course, we can think of right now is the uh, Trump Muslim ban that was initiated, yeah. like, you know, practically day one of his presidency, which was... Uh, this suspension of like specific classes of non-citizens coming in that was really specifically tailored to uh, affect uh, Muslim immigrants. Yeah. Um, and it was slightly adjusted to be like, well, no, people from these particular war zones and was more so focused on, you know, preventing uh, terrorists from coming into the U S um, they say, so, I mean, that's what they said. That was the justification for it. Yeah. Um, and that was all actually upheld um, in uh, the case Trump v. Hawaii. Um, yeah. And the one benefit of that case, uh, which is a, a 
interesting one to have uh, in the current day and age where we do have uh, concentration camps on the southern border um, was that that case specifically addressed uh, Korematsu. And yeah. Korematsu is the Supreme Court case that justified the Japanese internment camps. That essentially said, we are at war, it's a national security issue, and we need to suspend rights for a certain group of people. And clearly, based on race, or nationality, or uh, family yeah. nationality. Yeah, because some Germans were also interned, but obviously the, the major target was Japanese people. Yes, and uh, Trump v. Hawaii did specifically say that Korematsu v. U.S. was um, expressly overruled as being wrongly decided. And they said that at the time, what it was, was using national security as a sham to achieve other political goals. What they a surprise. Sp they specifically noted that at the same time that they were saying, and now because of national security concerns, we're going to ban an entire group of people from coming into this country. Yeah. And half a year after that was when uh, the um, uh, zero tolerance policy was initiated, again, by the Sessions AG, to say that if someone shows up at the border and they're a non-citizen, they can just be detained. They can just be taken straight and put in one of these t camps down the southern border. We can separate families. We can actually start, you know, even if someone yeah. comes with a valid uh, asylum claim, before having to actually process that or actually look at the claim, they can yeah. just be taken to one of these camps and put there. Which, to be clear, in order to claim asylum, you have to cross the border. Uh Without, without document, like yeah, you, you, you have, have to present to yourself to an immigration authority. You can't do <laughs> you, it remotely. You, yeah, um, if you do it remotely, that's calling, uh, that's called applying for refugee status. So there is a difference between refugees and asylees. Um, asylum, you have to cross the border, um, and uh, so it's not a crime to come to the U.S. and cross the border and then make a claim for asylum. And and there's um, a. a a thing in, in the U.S. law, which is we do not prosecute people for their status. Uh, in, okay, in theory, yeah. we do not prosecute people for their status. You can't say, well, you're a drug addict, therefore you're going to be punished. You can be punished right. for possession, you can be punished for sale. You can't be punished for being an addict. And yeah. this has come up a lot in talking about uh, how cities, particularly in California, have addressed uh, houseless populations. Yeah. And, you know, pushing folks out in the streets, penalizing them for sleeping on the streets. And it gets to a point where it's been questioned whether or not that is punishing them for being houseless. And a lot yeah. of courts have found, yes, it is, and you can't just actually arrest people for sleeping on the streets because they have nowhere else to go. Um, that's changed a little bit recently. Mm -hmm. I believe Oregon was the state that passed the law saying that if you are not allowing folks to sleep on the streets, you have to provide them with beds. Yeah. Um, which is, again, not the best solution yeah. because what they're doing is the essentially creating... I think creating... the Supreme Court approved that particular interpretation. Okay, yeah. well... I, I'd have to go and look it up, but... But it I still think ends talking... up being folks um, given the option of, like, well, you can surrender yourself to this, like, near-prison-type uh, camp for the yeah. evening, or you can stay on the streets and risk getting arrested. Yeah. Which... Yeah. God, fuck these people. <laughs> <laughs> who the, yeah, who the fuck thinks that up and thinks that's okay? I, I'll never understand that. But uh, I, I think another really, uh, really important aspect uh, that I want to go back to on the immigration 
yeah. uh, side is you said that the the justification for Congress having the power to regulate immigration or the power to like yeah, it's, uh, we'll just say regulate. It's not. A, it's 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 um, the, the plenary power. It right, basically the plenary is power. because they are um, the representatives yeah. of the state. They have this I power mean, they, inherent. They are the state uh, in many ways. Like you know the the old phrase with King Louis saying, you know, I am the state. Well, that that is true. Like in that sense, the crown was the state, and in Congress, uh, the state. Sorry, in the U.S., the state is uh, is Congress, supposedly. Um, it's really the president, but it doesn't matter. Um, so, but, but that gets back to what's the basis of the state, it, because that's one thing that we don't really talk about when it comes to immigration in this country. I mean, we'll hear mentions of it, uh, like, oh, well, we're an immigrant nation, right? Yeah. But there were people here before, <laughs> before the United States existed, oh, yeah. uh, for hundreds of thousands of years, uh, people lived on the American continents um, without being fucking disturbed by Europeans. So uh, that whole legal basis, though, for the for the establishment of a state with these plenary uh, plenary powers, it goes back to an even older legal doctrine that is very much the legal doctrine uh, that. Uh, supported the entire imperial age. Um, and that's called the Discovery Doctrine. So yeah. uh, the, the, the Discovery Doctrine was first named in a, in a really notorious case from the U.S. Supreme Court in called Johnson v. McIntosh. Um, and, and then it got, uh, and then that same case was even cited uh, in other countries, like in New Zealand, the New Zealand uh, High Court or Court of Appeal, I think, in, in the 1800s, cited this case as the way to overrule the Treaty of Waitangi. So, um, not only was, not only was the United States terrible uh, here, they also provided legal guidance to other colonial countries as a way to dis, uh, to dispossess and disenfranchise indigenous people that they had already fucking murdered and genocided. Um, well, but but it didn't start the the whole idea didn't start in this case though. It actually started uh, from 1455. Okay. Um, which was from a papal bull. So we're like the whole basis of law uh for for the establishment of states with these planetary uh, plenary powers in uh in the americas is law that was established by the pope in 1455 uh so this is the one that uh said that portugal's claims to lands discovered along the coast of west africa were fine mm -hmm. They say discovered. Um, well, of course, that's how they yeah. saw it a lot of the way. That's how um, and then in 1493, uh, the Intercaidera uh, ratified Spain's right to conquer newly found lands uh, after Christopher Columbus had already started doing that. And Christopher Columbus, when he arrived, uh, I, I believe it was um, the island of Hispaniola that he that he uh, landed on. Mm -hmm. um, so Cuba. Uh and uh you know immediately started taking slaves yeah um and and murdering people who didn't comply and, and in fact in a lot of indigenous societies that were conquered by europeans in fact one of the highest uh causes of death was suicide 
because they uh, did not want to be enslaved and conquered. Um, so that's a really sad fucking fact. Uh, but the whole basis that Christopher Columbus made for his claim for you know for Spain was he planted a flag and said, "I'm claiming this land for Spain," and then nobody resisted. Um, it later got turned into uh, the, the legal basis for the, the discovery doctrine became that uh, when Europeans came to these lands, they were uh, terra nullius, empty land. And they did actually specifically address the fact that there were already people living there um, and said that those lands are still empty, even though people are living there because they're not Christian. And that, I think, is another aspect of... Um of the law that is horrifying um interesting yeah. but horrifying um the idea that personhood can be given and taken away you can be by fiat by fiat um by some pretty well-established law the three-fifths compromise um was pretty clear about which people were full people and which people were not full people mm-hmm. um, partial people yeah, and that is uh, very much a creation of law, of saying, well, we're real people because we have this uh, European ancestry, and you are not because you lack that. Yeah, and and that gets into even further, like, laws used to define and separate people. Um, so So... Law is heavily based in language, right? Uh, and I think anyone who goes and studies law in, in any country will find that it's incredibly pedantic. It's all about definitions. Um, because how you define something uh, will tell you what laws apply and how they apply. Uh, and so the, the inherent, the inherent uh tendency of law is to break people down into different defined categories so that you can determine how they will be treated under the law. Um, and in some cases that makes sense, uh, like a lot of uh, like equal protection is based off of saying, well, some people in this category historically have been marginalized and for that reason uh, we're going to apply more scrutiny to uh, negative actions taken against them. So like if you're, yeah. you know, things like Title IX defending uh, mostly women, but Title IX also applies to men. Uh, so, you know, if, if a sport, if a college doesn't offer sports for women and only for men, well, the court's going to look at that with a lot of scrutiny uh, because you're clearly discriminating against women. Yeah. So uh, in some cases, defining it that way is useful. However, um, Frequently, uh, the de those defined categories of man, of woman, of black or white uh, were the problem in the first place and led to the discrimination. Well, because uh, a lot of them are um, what people refer to as legal fictions. It's where there isn't actually a strong basis outside of the law to create these um, arbitrary divisions. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Gender and sex um, have more of a historical background of separation, but race yeah. is one which has been 
very fluid throughout the entirety of uh, the U.S. Yeah. Of, you know, saying that basically the, the, the uh, continual expansion of what it means to be white. Um, yeah. Where for a long time it was, well, we mean Saxons. I mean, first we meant, you know, like uh, Anglo-Saxon groups and Lost. usually, yeah, yeah um, educated landowners. Those were like the actual people. Uh, and there's a lot of basis yeah. in this and the actual founding of this country of who actually who should be in charge, which is landed white males. Yeah. Um, and that which gradually... is still at what it is at the core, but. Yes, but it, you know, expanded to me like, well, also, we do mean some of these, you know, uh, more Central European folks. And after that, I was like, well, yeah. we also mean uh some of like the eastern european folks and uh, yeah. southern european folks and like well yeah i guess we mean the russians yeah. too okay well, yeah, and even we... it, and even in those situations it still required anglicization like it did we'll it, re let, it required we'll, conformity right you know we'll let the germans and, and the poles and and the russians and the italians be you know be part of the white ruling class of this be country people. but they have to speak english you know they have to. You know they have to be Protestant. They have to comply with these things. Um, so, well, I mean, still we have this like you know um, this last uh, 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 century in the U.S. There's been a lot of consternation from uh, the American evangelicals as to like, well, we can't trust Catholics. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, JFK, prime example. There yeah. There was a lot of pushback against him for being the first Catholic president yeah and so there, there is this idea still of like um who are the real people yeah i which is which is fundamentally the law is fundamentally the question that law is asking uh when it makes these categories um and and when you think of uh so many of the divisions in the u.s uh, between between people, like how we define people as black or white or Hispanic, or uh, or Latino or or any number of definitions, um, you can you can go and find uh, a legal history of that definition, um, yeah. and you can also compare it to other countries. So, like in the U.S., historically there was what was called the one drop rule. So if you had you know any ancestry of being black you know you may you might be multiracial um but if you had any history uh, of being black legally speaking you were frequently considered black uh even if you weren't necessarily uh part of black culture or uh or looked black so well and i actually want to uh, jump from that into like a i think a really clear tangent talking about blood quantum Yes. Um, because that's uh, – it, it is a method of determining uh, tribal membership for native tribes that uh, is related to uh, what percentage of your ancestry you can actually trace back to the tribe, um, genetically speaking. It's, you know, it's yeah. how much of your well, blood is native. And you have to be able to – in many cases, you have to be able to prove that specific family members were uh, – Yes, in the tribe. Yeah. And the issue with that is that um, that policy of blood quantum is uh, extremely uh, 
despised by a lot of the native community because a lot of folks are like, well, no, I'm native. I know I've been native my entire life. And the question then is, well, how well, okay, prove it? And if you can't prove it, then you're not entitled to the same rights. Yeah. And this ended up being a big issue recently with um, Elizabeth Warren's response to yeah. being called out for, for her saying that she had Cherokee ancestry. And, Fuck. and for that, I don't blame her for believing she had Cherokee ancestry because I think there are a lot of folks in this yeah. nation who were told at some point – you know, the, the, their grandmother yeah. told them at some point. Yeah. Oh yeah, no. Like my my grandpa was like was Cherokee. Like yeah, of course. Oh yeah, that's that's a really my my family too. Like I had I had uncles who said, well, you know, we we looked into it, but it you know didn't have enough. Like yeah, yeah. okay. But the response <laughs> of that then to actually go and get a genetic test is buying into this. Uh, yeah. This, this this despised method of well, I'm going to prove I'm part of this group. And in right. a way, it because being uh, part of that group is like legally speaking, it's about blood. Yeah, um, and it legitimizes a system that is uh, racist, but also is designed in such a way that unless tribal groups uh, only have uh, children within their own tribal group, if, if there is any kind of you know going outside of their group to have kids it's going to actually dilute the number of folks who can actually apply for tribal yeah. membership. It's and it's specifically designed to eradicate tribes. It is, which is, I don't believe that actually qualifies under uh, UN genocide, but it has similar effects. Um, uh, argue, uh, I don't it know. Arguably it arguably could. I think, I think arguably could. could. I'm not sure if it actually does yeah. meet some of the qualifications for that, um, but I don't know. That's, I think yeah. it could count as ethnic cleansing. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I could definitely make an um, argument for it. Yeah, um, well, you can make an argument for anything. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, I I think that also attaches uh, back to uh, the definition of statehood. Uh, one of the reasons why the U.S. government, uh, one of the one of the bases that the U.S. government cites as uh -huh. its authority to put in place this blood quantum. Uh, system is that uh, indigenous nations are not sovereign nations. Um, it says uh, that in fact uh, indigenous nations are are called uh, are considered legally speaking domestic dependent nations. Uh, okay. <laughs> which talk talk about some like Orwellian double speak. Uh, yeah. You know, which is, that's law in a lot of ways. Uh, well, the interesting things right now that I've been seeing with the um, uh, coronavirus, the uh, COVID-19 stuff going on is um, yeah. seeing a couple uh, tribal groups close off their lands and just say like, no, you can't enter, that's which curious. is a good imposition of sovereignty. I mean, it's, saying, it's like, sensible. No. Yeah, oh, it's sensible. It, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, as everyone else is doing that, you know. Especially when these places are like um, lots of older people, lots of older people, and not great medical, medical services. Facilities. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's it's a very sensible thing to do, but it seems like a good exercise of sovereignty to say like, no, we're actually closing our borders right now. Um, I mean, like, I guess the question really is like, what makes us sovereign? And a big part of that is borders, which is why you know discussing immigration as heavily as we are. Um, 
because I think a lot of law is about who can enter and what they actually contribute to the state. Yeah. Um, and because um, it's, it's not merely like um, like racial groups or ethnic groups or nationality groups. Um, there are a lot of folks who have been prohibited from entering places based on um, uh, beliefs. Uh, the, we had the Anarchist Acts in uh, 1918 that it's a deportable offense if you affiliate with any organization that uh, entertains a belief in violent overthrow of the government or anarchism. And it was used, <laughs> brought, it was broad enough, and it, this, it came, was, you know, again, like 1918, and yeah. it was uh, used as one of the basis for deporting oh. a lot of folks during the McCarthy era. Didn't, um, didn't they deport Emma Goldman with that? Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, because it was used yeah. uh, against communists uh, starting in, like, the 40s. Um, yeah, but before that, it was anarchists uh, who were um, real opponents of the First World War, and so they were deported for that. Yeah, yeah. and after that, it was much more of a, of a communist. And there yeah. was some question of folks who had actually, like, you know, being kept out of the country because they were communists and affiliated with the uh, country's communist party. But in a lot of these cases, it was people who had uh, been part of a communist party in their country prior to uh, Soviet bloc and then saying, OK, well, no, I don't want to be part of this anymore, leaving the communist party and trying to flee to America. And the U.S. looking at them and saying, like, well, no, you were involved with the communist party before, say, like the Alien Registration Act. But still, because you were involved with it at some point, now you can be banned from this country. Yep. And so, yeah, the Alien Registration Act, um, it said that like, any, any non-citizen who's been a member of any subversive group at any time is deportable. And then but, they actually had another one called the But if you're a Nazi and you know how to build rockets, come right over. We'll oh, pay yeah. for it. Yeah. Uh. I mean... If nothing, the U.S. is ideologically consistent about being not ideologically consistent. The The idea that uh, folks can be deported for crimes or denied um, entrance to the country based on crimes they've yeah. committed. Yeah. And um, one of the, the really broad um, things that can be used to deny people entry to the U.S. is if they were convicted of a crime of moral turpitude. Which what a phrase. Is, oh, boy. It means um, absolutely nothing. But it just everything. means it means if it's a crime that has some upsetting thing to somebody. That, that, that's basically how, how broad it is. So it's a use of you know yeah. um, for controlled substance stuff, aggravated felonies, um, drug abusers, uh, domestic violence, um, a whole bunch of things that kind of just at any time they need to just kind of put some other random crime in there it just ends up being uh crime moral turpitude and that gets back kind of the broader aspect of you know why if the law is something that can be made up kind of on an ad hoc basis just as needed we're going to change what the law means then the law is flexible for those that impose it <laughs> you don't say i do yeah. say and the I mean, worry about that is con that... i think that's the consistent conclusion we're coming to every time we you know every 
distinct issue we've brought up here. Like, in the end, it's it's the people who hold the power who make the rules. They can change them at any time and enforce them in any way they want. And there are few limitations on what they can do. So, I think that there is this strong um, belief in uh, liberals in this country that we have this very brilliant, cleverly designed law and that it will save us from um, the nascent fascism we are seeing. <laughs> and that, like, don't worry, we'll, you know, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll impeach Trump and we'll get him out of there. And we're going to, you know, pass some new laws, get all these kids out of the camps. And we're going to fix it with these legal systems that we can put into yeah. place because we are good people who want yeah. to put good laws in place. Well, and it, why is the law not going to save us? Well, here's one fundamental issue mm. that the that the law allowed for this to even happen is a problem. When you have a when you have a system of governance, of decision making, of politics mm -hmm. uh, that allows children to be put in concentration camps, your system doesn't work. I mean, th this system works the way it was supposed to work, but the problem is that <sighs> there are a lot of problems. But I, I think one issue we have, particularly in the U.S., but this is the case everywhere too, is that people differentiate between the law and politics, um, and then they differentiate between the law and politics and then everything else in life, particularly economics. Uh, and this, this is a fundamental difference in ideology from most leftists who and anarchists um, who see uh, that politi politics is about how you make decisions for people you know is about how you, you exercise power in a society yeah uh, and you know the law the laws are the rules about how you exercise that power Um and, and the ways you exercise that power. Uh, and economics is simply an exercise of power as well, that economics are politics. Like so that's the whole reason it's called socialism is that uh, we started to, you know, the idea is that you see economic issues as social issues. Yeah. Um, that you see, and, and that you see economic issues as political issues. Um, political economy really should just be the one word for it all because you cannot have economics without politics, um, and you can't have politics without economics, and you and you can't separate law from politics either because it's so uh, in in liberal democracies or in in liberal societies generally um, so inherent in managing uh, political decision making and economic decision making. Yeah. Um, so I, I think. It comes from a failure to understand that that the, it's all interconnected this is about in a way power. that is yeah. Um, yeah, and so I think it becomes easy for liberals to dismiss uh, the excesses of the legal system and the liberal political system uh, because they don't see it as being about power. They don't see it as really being about life and death. Um, Though sometimes sometimes they get that, uh, and I they, think in a lot of cases they, they see it as 
they see law through this scope of justice and they see it as well we're gonna make sure that everybody gets a fair shake at it yeah but they don't see it as um these established hurdles that folks have to get through they see the hurdles as um necessary gatekeeping to keep folks all on the same level playing field without addressing the real disparity in how folks have access to legal system access to health systems access to uh basic and and the general effect that the legal system has on everybody um i i would argue that uh the overall effect of the legal system uh today on poor and working class people uh is negative just outright it's negative um you could remove that you could remove that legal system and their lives would immediately be better i don't think the same could necessarily be said for the middle class um especially not the rich but that's really that's really what it comes down to that's how you can see that it's about politics because it's serving somebody's interests yeah um someone is benefiting from it and and someone is hurting because of it you don't have to look far to see who's benefiting um you know it benefits the property holders it benefits the rich um you know that that's why even in systems where it looks like there's kind of an equal shake it never is, you know, like landlord-tenant law. Oh, it doesn't. It doesn't Ooh. matter what landlord-tenant <laughs> law you have. It doesn't matter what landlord-tenant laws you have. The landlord always has more power in that situation. Well, I mean, even thinking of you know, with the contracts landlords will send to you, you'll get a contract that is a form contract that has mm-hmm. uh, provisions in it that are not applicable to wherever you're actually living right. you're gonna have a place that doesn't have a pool but has four pages in the legal documents about, you're signing yeah. about proper pool usage because they it's just some yeah. form document the landlord got online and yeah. you know they're probably had their attorney look over and include, oh yeah that sounds great and send it off and when you're looking at that contract and you want to live somewhere you want to be able to shoot, like, you know have a place to live you're gonna say okay well there's stuff in here that doesn't apply to me, but I'm still just going to sign off on it because I want yeah. to live here. And you and can't negotiate. You're not, if you try no to negotiate, they'll just tell you to fuck off. Yeah. Um, so you don't actually have power to negotiate. Uh, and and even though, legally speaking, there is an, an argument you can make to invalidate at least some parts of a contract based on you're not having like full power to negotiate it's never ever going it's never ever applied in in landlord tenant law on the no. basis that that as a tenant you had less power um because the courts are going to side with the fucking landlords um overwhelmingly uh and even though the landlord put the almost no be, effort into well, this contract well the argument and will be, gave, you had the time to look over the contract you had time to get a lawyer to help explain it to you and you signed the contract so what are you complaining yeah. about you know never mind that a lawyer costs 200 dollars an hour um you know more in some places uh a lot more no it, it's a farce it's it's just absolute bullshit um and it the other side of the law is because support for law and order is so propagandized in our society when the law does implicitly and clearly um take the side of a certain group 
um, people will generally see that group as in the right. Yeah. Um, the number of people, the number of like working class people that I run into who, when we talk about landlord issues, will constantly talk about, well, on the other hand, you know, you know, from the landlord's point of view, this, this, and this. And I have to like, it's tough because people <laughs> really like this. They really like this idea of being fair and balanced and, and all of that. Yeah. But like, no. <laughs> They want to believe in no, the strength of the structure fucking, around them. They want to believe. Stop fucking doing that. You do not have to see it from your landlord's point of view. You have your interests. They have theirs. It is not your job to give in to their interests. It's your job to advocate for your own interests. And sometimes that results in conflict with the landlord. And some people are in better are in better positions to do that, right? So, so I'm not saying that everybody should just go and tell their landlord to fuck off, even though that would be awesome. Um, you know, people are obviously standing at different levels of power when it comes to the relation with landlords. Um, but you do not have to see it from your landlord's point of view for the love of God. You do not have to see it from the landlord's point of view. Yeah. Um, they have money. They're taking thousand, you know, a thousand dollars or more from you every month. Um, you know, yeah, they're already they taking a ton to from you. Them. They don't. Yeah, they don't need you to defend them. They've got the fucking money to do it. Um, they do almost nothing, and they get income. Whereas the rest of us have to bust our asses every day, and some of us have it really easy when we're busting our asses. So, but for most people, it's just ridiculous. Um, well, I mean, the fact but, that you know, right now we are really waiting on some sort of edict from the government, either statewide or federally, to say. Okay, in the midst of this pandemic, when folks are literally being told that their jobs are shut down and they can't go back to work, mm-hmm. that there's not been a rent freeze. There's discussion about mortgage no. freezes right now. There are eviction freezes, um, yep. but but that doesn't mean that you're not going to owe the rent for all of those months at the end of that freeze. You may end up having to still pay that total amount, and when you don't, the landlord would be able to evict you then. So. As always, liberal solutions are Band-Aid solutions, um, yep. and uh, they don't address the structural issues. And the problem is they can't, because to address the structural issues would require fundamentally undermining law, I think. So at least that's a very anarchist position. Uh, yes, but I think also that, that it's, it's, it's the sense of, well, we can't go too far. This is what the literal position is. Yeah. We can't go too far. We can't really address uh, flaws in the law itself. We have to follow the um, the systems that are in place and take everything step by step because that's what the law requires. And you see that pretty distinctly, I think, with um, the impeachment proceedings. Yeah. Where we had two parties, one of which is saying we have to follow all these basic steps present all the evidence, walk through this thing piece by piece. Again, after years of um, abuses of power and uh, impeachable violations. Yeah. And you have the other party that at this point is emboldened by the fact that nothing had been brought sooner who said, no, we're we're not going to have witnesses. We're not going to have evidence. We're going to take our ball and go home. Mm -hmm. And they fairly openly just flouted the law. And yeah. the liberal response was just this sort of 
Harumph. Yeah, this is gonna. Oh, uh, how uh, terrible! Open, now we have to gasp and like, oh, now oh, gosh, you know, we uh, we just tried our best, and boy, we didn't do that great. Well, guess we better elect Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> like, what a response! Like, to and and I think that if you if you go and look at the history of it, um, that legal systems are absolutely predisposed toward this uh, when someone decides that they're not going to play by the rules um, but still has power, right? So, and we see that with rich people all the time. They can they can rape and they can murder and they can get away with it. Oh, the fucking affluenza Um, kid. Huh? The fucking affluenza kid. Yeah. The kid who well, like, and the, killed, and that's like a little drunk drive ended up killing four yeah. people. And then his mom took him to flee the country when he was out on bail. And there yeah. weren't any real repercussions. It's like, yeah, he went to prison for a few no. months. That was it. And, that, and that's for, for, for a kid who actually got charged, indicted, and convicted. Oh, yeah. Uh, then there, you know, then there's the, uh, you know, the like Jeffrey Epstein Oh boy! Okay, yeah, that's gonna be a future episode where I'm gonna go deep conspiracy mind on folks, and I'm gonna love Mm. that one. But um, yeah, well, I mean, there was obviously a conspiracy. Like you, you had a fucking uh, U.S. attorney who like broke the law and and didn't inform victims of uh, of a deal that was being made, and then a really cushy deal that had him essentially confined to his mansion. Yeah, like so, but but, by an attorney who who. Um, by an attorney who may have uh, actually helped folks uh, murder their wives. Hmm. Dershowitz has some pretty sketchy stuff in his history yeah. that, like, there's a lot of yeah. people online talk about. It, like, it's like, yeah, there are some things that, like, boy, it kind of seems like he's helped a lot of people yeah. whose wives well, have mysteriously so, disappeared. So. so that's a situation where, again, there was a man who was actually brought to court, but most of the time they're not brought to court. No. Um, consider, for example, uh, a, a, a different situation. The single largest amount of theft that occurs in this country is wage theft. It is employers stealing from their employees. Absolutely. How many of them go to prison for that? You know, but shoplift three times in no. California, you're in prison. Fuck oh, yeah. you. Like, so... so it's very much a class thing, right? So you have that side of it. But then you also have like the organized political side of it where you have the Republican Party who's decided that the rules also don't apply to them as a political force. Uh, so that, you know, this is such a, uh, this is a much like a macrocosm of the rich getting away with everything. So now you have a political party that's getting away with everything. They'll flout the law. They'll do anything. They'll cover for their president. Um, and we already know that they want to get rid of habeas corpus, as we discussed uh, in in the first episode. Yep. Um, and you know they and that they are perfectly fine with organizing concentration camps. And when you listen to the actual individual politicians, uh, many of them have oh. called for death penalties for you know for political opponents. But not even have, that. What's the guy's name up in the Washington? The um... Oh, Matt Shea. Matt yeah. Shea, who like yeah. actually has kind of been advocating for a 
not even a genocide, just like a rampage of terror and murder and rape. Oh yeah, he to came enforce with like those, those biblical state. rules, those biblical rules of warfare. But kill, even kill the men and rape the women. He, essentially, he like, organized. He organized, planned out with fucking maps the occupation of the Malheur uh, wildlife refuge. Um, like, so so you had you had the guys who who uh, were charged for that, and the jury let them off somehow. Um, but but Matt Shea, who is a a state representative in Washington, uh, in in the state of Washington. Uh, who planned it and he has not been arrested and charged yeah. um to to very to their very little credit uh the the washington uh republican party has uh ousted him he's not a member of the republican party anymore but uh but he's still in the legislature um and he and he still walks free after planning insurrection and 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 put in and making you know and, and making it happen yeah. so you know th that's just another case of okay so you have a republican party that is actively organizing uh with militias mm -hmm. in different capacities i don't think the washington republican party was in on this um but you know matt shea was organizing with them and organized that occupation uh in the state of oregon uh the republican party actually organized, I think, with the 3% or militia to use them as security for political events. Yeah. And like, so, when they uh, dropped out of one of the... Uh, uh, I don't know if the vote was on, but there was just a vote, and they're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're yeah. not participating. Uh, it was the, the carbon tax. It was the carbon yeah. tax, yeah. Yeah, and they which left the state. a terrible, stupid policy. It is. It's, it's a very like neoliberal policy, that. and it's not smart. Yeah. But, um, um, but still, they all just like dropped out, all went to Idaho, and actually had statements made well it's like well if you send police to come bring us back to the state to do our fucking jobs well the, the, what yeah. was the line it was like you better send um unmarried men without kids oh yeah it's like a yeah. direct threat to shoot police officers by mm -hmm. state representatives yeah and it just kind of was accepted yeah if the law doesn't apply to these people it no, the law doesn't apply to these people, and the and this is uh, right now we're we're at clo close to the peak of a fifty year strategy of the conservative movement, um, which is not to say that it was sat down and planned out by some like central conservative committee. That is not the case. No, but it is definitely the case that over the course of, I mean, basically since the uh, impeachment of Nixon, um, when. Uh, a few political operatives uh, essentially came up with the idea of Fox News as a propaganda arm uh, so that another Republican president would never be impeached. Yeah. Um, you know, that was also going on with, uh, you know, it started in the 50s and the 60s, uh, but, but it really grew to fever pitch in the 70s, um, was the rise of a very extreme white supremacist, white nationalist, neo-Nazi uh, movement is hardly the word for it, but we'll, we'll call it a movement that was growing up in the United States at that time and that had connections with uh, with the conservative movement that, um, you know, 
that led eventually. And uh, I, I highly recommend people uh, go and listen to uh, Robert Evans' uh, audiobook, The War on Everyone. It actually goes in depth into the history of uh, the, the relationship, uh, particularly the history of neo Nazis uh, and white supremacist uh, movements growing up in the US, uh, but also their connections to uh, the more mainstream uh, conservative movement, particularly when it comes to anti abortion activism, uh, which was used as a way to shoehorn. Uh, very extreme right-wing politics into uh, the more normalized conservative movement. And we see similar things going on today um, with like, you know, free speech rallies where, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of like honest, con you know, honest conservative people show up because they think they believe in free speech, but then they get there and they, you know, they're not attuned to the dog whistles and they don't quite realize that they're surrounded by people who are literally members of fascist and neo-Nazi groups. Yeah. Um, so like, this just goes to demonstrate that you have this 50 year general generalized strategy of the conservative movement that's been militarizing, uh, that has a very violent side to it, um, and is now, uh, openly flouting, uh, the fundamental laws of, of the country, um, that just goes to show really how the law functions. Uh, that um, the law does not apply to people who can literally fight it with violence. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're basically over time. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I could definitely go on. Um, yeah, I, I think that's there are, there are topics that were brought up that I want to discuss later. The idea that, you know, um, the law does yeah. not apply to folks who actually have the capacity to fight it. I do want to talk about the malicious stuff we've seen in the last, you know, like a uh, few years um, yeah. from the stuff down at the, the Bundy Ranch in uh, Nevada, um, yeah. stuff happening with um, the Milhure um, wildlife uh, occupation. Yeah. Um, the stuff with uh, gun rights rallies down in Virginia and yeah. um, free speech, big quote protests, uh, yeah. talk about Charlottesville, talk about um, Patriot, Patriot Prayer. Prayer. And um, yeah. I want to have an episode on that as well, but I think that this is probably a good spot to close out the episode, yeah. just saying that like the law does and not apply evenly. It never has. Certainly not. It has been used to it was justify never meant to. absolute atrocities and continues to be so. And it is malleable enough that it can do all of that simultaneously. There's not been some yeah. big shift in how we look at the law. The law, as it is applied, has been relatively the same. Yeah. Um, and we'll go into more depth on the specific ways that bureaucracies are a part of that, since bureaucracies are uh, the main way that most citizens actually interact with the, with the state. And I think bureaucracy um, is really poorly understood by a lot of people because we're not exactly yeah. taught exactly what it is or how it works no. or how people actually can interact with it and what that means. So we hope that people will stick along with us and that our conversations are interesting enough. Uh, and we're going to go more into depth with these issues. We've got a lot to say about them. We've got a lot of questions about them. Got a lot of thoughts, a lot of opinions. <laughs> Lots of feelings. A lot of feelings. Uh, it's a long road ahead. Yep. And don't quite know where we're going but we'll get there uh, together but we'll get there together